You take the word of God, please, and turn to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. 1 John chapter 3 and verses 1 through 5. 1 John 3 and verses 1 through 5 this morning. And we're going to consider a phrase that we find in verse number 4. I'll let you know what that is. Let's read 1 John 3, 1 through 5. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know. When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us today as we open your word to be expectant. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to be interesting, but I pray that you'd help those who are listening to be interested. Lord, move in our hearts. We ask you, Lord, to do a work. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The word is can be used as the third person singular present of the word be, but it's most often used as a helping verb or a linking verb. We're talking about the word is. With that in mind, notice with me three times that we find the word is being used as a linking verb in relationship to the subject of sin. The first one we find is here in 1 John 3, in verse number 4, the definition of sin Sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is the transgression of the law. Now the word is in 1 John 3, 4 is pivotal to helping us understand what sin is. Again, sin is the transgression of the law. When the word is is used as a linking verb in 1 John 3, 4, it communicates to us that sin equals transgression. Therefore, we see again, sin is transgression. So the next logical question might be, what's transgression? I'm glad you asked. It's different from a trespass. We see both words used in describing sin in the Word of God. To trespass, I think, we understand. You see the signs that say, no trespassing. To trespass means to go into a forbidden area. To transgress means to leave the boundaries that have been set. So to trespass means that we've gone into a place where we don't belong. But to transgress means we've left a place we do belong. We've gotten outside of the boundaries. And so to transgress means literally to pass beyond the limits. To pass beyond the limits. Therefore, the transgression of the law 
is to pass beyond the limits that God has established in His law. Sin is the transgression of the law. So the next question might be, if you're with me this morning, what are the limits? What are the limits that God has established? Well, there's 613 of them. But we'll only talk about 10 of them this morning because we're most familiar with those 10. As a matter of fact, we could reduce it down to just two as Jesus did in a part of Scripture that we'll mention in a few minutes. But we're going to only discuss the most familiar, the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments can be found in the book of Exodus chapter 20. Now, if you're going to follow me to Exodus 20, I'd like for you to put your marker, Bible marker in 1 John 3. Leave it there because we're going to go back there. And we'll return to 1 John 3. So put, your, put a marker there. Leave your finger in there. And then turn with me as well to Exodus chapter 20. And we're going to look at the limits that God has established in His Word. As you're turning to Exodus 20, you can find the Ten Commandments again repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And we find them quoted in part all through the Old and the New Testament. I sometimes point that out to people when they say, well, we're not under the law because the law is just in the Old Testament. It's all through the Bible. The law is quoted. And of one example of that, as a matter of fact, is in Romans 13.9. If you're trying to show somebody uh, their need for a Savior, you can go to Romans 13.9, and several of the commandments are listed there. It says, for this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And so if you needed a, a New Testament reference for uh, part of the law, at least part of it, uh, Romans 13.9 is a good place to go. There's a lawyer that once asked Jesus, he was trying to trip him up, he was trying to tempt him, the Bible tells us, he asked him, which is the great commandment in the law? And in Matthew chapter 22, the Word of God records that Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. He said, this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus didn't just neck it down to ten commandments. He said, really, you can sum them up in two. And I think that's important for understanding what we find in Exodus chapter 20. From our Lord's statement there in Matthew 22, 40, we could say that the law is divided into two sections. The law is divided into two sections. First of all, mankind's relationship to God. We find that in the statement, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. And so we see that that's one section of the commandments. Then the other section of the Ten Commandments is mankind's relationships to one another. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's why Jesus said on those two commandments hang all the other parts of the law and the prophets. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 4.20, I'd like for you to stay in Exodus 20, so keep a, a finger there, but 1 John 4.20 John said, if a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother, whom he hath seen, how can he love God, whom he hath not seen? Right? And so from these things, we, 
we could say that our earthly relationships or the way that we uh, relate to other people is a reflection of how we relate to God. Now, I, I think that we need to go beyond the scope of, of those that we like because, quite frankly, there's people in this world that we don't like, right? And how we respond, that's how we need to look at this. How we respond to those that we don't like is a reflection of our relationship with God. Because God has told us to love one another regardless of the person's race, creed, political uh, beliefs, or whatever it might be. Those things, the relational things that we have uh, with one another, even with those that we don't like, is a direct reflection of our relationship with God. And it shows us that uh, through the Word of God, and we recognize this, that, that our relationship with one another is a reflection of our relationship with God. So because of this, let us begin with the commandments in Exodus 20 that deal with our relationships with one another. We'll work our way from the bottom of the Ten Commandments up to the top, from the tenth to the first. The first uh, one we'll talk about, but is the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. Now we discussed this a little bit last week, so let's rehearse this once again. What does it mean to covet? What does it mean to covet? It means to desire to have something that you don't have. Now, uh, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever, uh, by that definition, have ever coveted, wished you had something that you didn't have? If you've ever looked at a catalog, you've probably coveted, right? Uh, whether it's the Cabela's catalog or I don't know what ladies, you know, the JCPenney catalog, whatever it might be, if we've looked at a catalog, there's probably been a moment when we've desired to have something. That's coveting. So what does is, what is coveting make you? It doesn't make you a house and a car. It makes you a coveter. It makes you a coveter. All right, so let's uh, go to the next one. It's verse number 16 in Exodus 20 where it says, Thou shalt not bear false witness. That means to tell a lie. Okay? Well, let me ask this question. Would you be so honest today to, by a show of hands, show if you've ever told a lie? Yeah. Everybody has their hands raised except for the little ones because they don't know the difference. If I was to talk to them more directly, they'd probably raise their hands too. They, yeah, every one of us has lied. We've all lied. So if you tell a lie, what does that make you? A liar. How many lies does it take to be a liar? Same amount of murders it takes to be a murderer. Just one. So by your own testimony. You're telling me this morning that I have a congregation. This pulpit is filled by a coveting liar. Right? How about the next one, the Eighth Commandment, which we find in the 15th verse of Exodus 20? Thou shalt not steal. Now, by a show of hands. Now, let me give a little, little bit more with this, just so we can all be on the same page. How many of you have ever taking an extra minute on your break time at work, or maybe back in your school days, you weren't quite confident as you should be about the test you were taking. Maybe you looked over and took an answer off your neighbor's page. So you've stolen. You've stolen. If you steal something, what does that make you? So we're a bunch of coveting, lying thieves, according to the Word of God, right? Let's move to the next one. Hopefully these will get simpler as we go. And the next two we're going to see that it's not just an action, but it's, it's the spirit behind it. 
That makes the difference. That tells us whether we violated these things because in verse number 14 of Exodus 20, we find the seventh commandment which says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Nobody raise your hands. We live in a day and age that's rampant with that. I saw an article in Charisma magazine. I'm embarrassed to even say that I read it. But it said it was good news that the divorce rate in the church is lower than it's ever been. Well, let me tell you why it's lower than it's ever been. Because people aren't getting married. They're just shacking up. So that number is on the increase. Well, and they're looking at the divorce rate going down. That's Nothing was solved. That's like cutting off the bottom part of the blanket and sewing it to the top. Give you a longer blanket, you know what I'm saying? That, that, if, you need, if you need help with that after the service, let me know and we'll do a demonstration or something. It doesn't solve the problem. But there's a spirit behind it because in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus was preaching something called the Sermon on the Mount. You've probably heard it. I know you have. And in verses 27 and 28, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And so adultery is not an action, it's a thought. I want to ask for a show of hands. But if you would be honest, are you an adulterer? You looked upon the opposite sex to lust after them in your heart? Maybe not in a just a sexual manner, but I wish my husband was like that. I wish my wife was like that. That's the spirit of the law. In a very light form, that's adultery. So if you commit adultery, what does that make you? An adulterer. The next commandment, I was hoping these would get easier, and I, and I think maybe we, we have a winner here, is the sixth commandment. We find it in Exodus 20 and verse number 13, Thou shalt not kill. By the fact that you're here this morning and not in prison, uh, we might discern that nobody in this room has murdered somebody else. Although... I read a statistic that the average murderer, somebody who premeditates and kills somebody, only spends 19 years in prison. Average. That's disgusting. Take a human life like that, you know. Thou shalt not kill. Any murderers? 1 John 3 and verse number 15. Just keep your finger in Exodus 20 and go back to our text in 1 John 3, 15. Would you look there a minute? Here again, we have the spirit of the law being communicated. Are you there? 1 John 3.50. Whosoever hateth his brother is a, say it with me, murderer. Have you ever said, I hate you? Have you ever thought, I hate you? Hate is the seed of murder. Now by that, how many of you would have to admit, yeah, I've said, I hate you. I've thought, I hate you. I've looked at somebody and, and that really disgusts me. I have thought I've had hate in my heart. How many of you would say, by that definition, I'm a murderer? If you kill somebody, what does that make you? Murder. You've killed them in your heart. So by your own testimony, we're a bunch of coveting, lying, stealing, adultering murderers in this room. Is that what you're seeing? 
In verse number 12, we get to the fifth commandment, love thy, or I'm sorry, honor thy father and thy mother. Have you always done that? Did you go through the same number of years that I did as a teenager and rebelled against my parents? Does that make you a rebel? And then we get to the other half of the Ten Commandments, not just man's relationship. And, and all of those things that we just talked about, all of those things we're guilty of, and it reflects our relationship with God. And that's what this second category measures when it goes to the fourth commandment in Exodus 20 and uh, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now we worship on the Lord's day. There was a new thing that was established once Jesus rose from the dead. And honestly, that's an entirely different message. I have a message about it, why we worship on Sunday and not on Saturday. Someday I'll bring that. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath, and, and so we observe the Lord's Day. And Can we honestly say that, we, that we've been faithful to the Lord's Day? You know. How about the third commandment? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Have you ever used God's name as a cuss word? Uh, let's go one step beyond that and look at the spirit of this a little bit more. Many of us would never think to do that. We, it might have slipped out from time to time. You hit your thumb with, your ha- with a hammer. You don't feel very spiritual, do you? Sometimes a word might come out that's dishonoring to God. There's that part of it. But also, you know, we, we get so immune to it, so callous to it. We wouldn't do it ourselves, but we, in uh, matter of fact, we wouldn't even allow somebody to come into our home and do that. Would you let somebody come into your home and, and use God's name in vain? And I think the average person, Christian, would say, well, of course not. We let somebody come in my home and use that type of language, and yet we do it all the time through the television set and through videos. We don't think a thing about it. We like our flesh more than we like God because we want to watch that show or we're being entertained by that thing. You see what I mean? You've broken that commandment. How about the second commandment? Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Now if you were to look at verse number 5, you'd see that was for the intent of worship. I don't think that having a cross on this wall is a graven image. We don't worship this cross. We don't bow down at this cross. This is talking about uh, images that we would bow to and worship. There's some churches that have their walls adorned with saints and they bow down to those saints. That breaks that commandment. Then we'll get down to the first commandment, verse number three, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And honestly, we've broken that one as well. So how can I know if, if I have other gods? Well, your, your bank account is a good indicator. Where you spend your money is, is, is where you place your faith. Where you spend your money is where you place, or where you spend your time is where you place your faith. Those are just indicators, not all the time. I'm just saying, if you're wondering, do I have a, other gods in my life? From time to time, I'll sit down and look at my bank statement and say, okay, where, where am I putting my faith? Where am I putting my trust? Where am I putting my attention? Else should I have no other gods before me. See, sin is the transgression of the law. It's passing beyond the limits that God has established in his law. So one might suggest then, well, all we have to do to be right with God is keep the Ten Commandments. 
based on the conversation we've just had about our sin, I, I don't know about you, but every time I go through those Ten Commandments and consider them, I, I get under conviction. I realize what a sinner I am before a holy and righteous God. And somebody might say, well, all then we have to do to please God, to be right with God, is to keep the Ten Commandments. Well, there's several problems with that. One of them is that the Word of God clearly states that good works do not secure a relationship with God, nor a home in His presence for eternity. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There will be no boasting in heaven. Another issue is that the law is one law. If you break one, you break them all. James 2.10 says, For whosoever shall keep the law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all. It was meant to be taken as a whole. So if I've just broken one law, just told one lie in my lifetime, I've broken the law and I've transgressed. I've gotten out of the boundaries that God has established for me. Another issue is that it's too late. Every one of us has broken the law. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us. We fall short of the glory of God. What is the, I should say, who is the glory of God? The glory of God is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all like to say it when people try to put us on the spot and make us feel bad for things. We like to say things like, well, nobody's ever walked on water. Kind of comparing ourselves to, to Christ. Recognizing that there was one Jesus Christ that walked on water. That's the glory of God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here's another issue. God, listen, this is the most important one. God never intended for us to keep the law, ever. God never intended it. You say, well, why did God give us the law? Galatians 3.24 tells us the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. God never intended for us to keep the Ten Commandments. He intended for us to see our failure. Failure after failure after failure after failure after failure to bring us to Christ that we might be justified not by works but by faith. God gave us the law to instruct us in Romans 3.19. The Word of God says, What things soever the law saith, it saith to them, who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. That's why the law was given. To stop the mouths, to stop the excuses, to stop the finger pointing, and to stop people from shifting blame to other people. The law was given so that every mouth might be stopped before God. All the world may become guilty before God. We had to learn our need of the Savior. That's why the law was given. And so number one, we see the definition of sin in 1 John 3, 4. Sin is the transgression of the law. Number two, the demand for sinning. In our text, go back to 1 John 3, 4. We, we see something that had been looming over the believers. These are believers John's writing to. That's an important key to know. And back in 1 John 3, we see something that it had been looming over the saints that John was writing to. It was looming over John as well. 1 John 3.14, uh, John said this under the divine inspiration of God, we know that we have passed from death. Stop right there. Something had been looming over the heads of those believers, over the head of John, because he said, we know that we have passed from death. And we're talking about the demand for sinning. 
The Word of God provides further commentary on this matter of death and its connection to sin in Romans 6 and verse number 23, the first part of the verse. You probably know it. For the wages of sin is death. That's the demand for sin. In Romans 6.23, the word is is being used as a linking verb, and it helps us to understand God's demand for the transgression of the law. Romans 6.23 shows us that the wages of sin equals death. The payment for sin is death. What does death mean? Well, death means separation. The Word of God speaks of two deaths. Therefore, we can arrive at the conclusion that there's two types of death. The first death is spoken of in Hebrews 9.27. I had a conversation with my neighbor's daughter about this. And it is appointed unto men once to die. It's a physical death that that's speaking of. It's appointed unto men once to die. This speaks of the first death, the physical death that separates us from our loved ones here on this earth. Death means separation. We all have appointment, an appointment with death if the Lord doesn't come back and take us out of this world before that happens. And that's the only way that that appointment is going to be changed. It's going to be God that changes it. None of us can change the appointment that we have with death. It's appointed unto man once to die. It's the demand for sin. Every one of us is a sinner, and the demand for that sin is separation, death. Now, first death we talk about is a physical death. But then the second half of Hebrews 9.27 says, but after this, the judgment. It says, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. That speaks of the second death. Revelation, the book of Revelation 21 and verse number 8 uh, talks about this. I'd like for you to take the word of God there and, and keep your marker. We're, we're done in Exodus. Now you can move on to Revelation. Keep your marker in 1 John 3. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to see that the Bible talks about a second death. Not a physical death, but a, not a separation from those on this earth in time, but a separation from God for eternity. A more hor- a horrific death than could ever experience on this earth. Revelation, excuse me, Revelation 21 and verse number 8. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murders, we've already agreed today that we're murders, whoremongers, those are adulterers and sorcerers, idolaters and all, uh-oh, liars admitted that too, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is, what does it say? The second death. I'll give you a little bonus scripture here. Revelation 2014 defines the second death. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This, here's a linking verb, is the second death. That communicates to us that the lake of fire equals the second death. You see, it's appointed unto man once to die, to be separated from those in this world in this time that we live in, in this part of human history. But then there's a second death coming for those that do not have Christ, and that is a separation from God for eternity. Now, the Bible has much to say about a place called hell. I think the greatest, the greatest fear, for, for me anyway, of hell is the fact that that, that person who goes to hell will be separated from God for eternity. 
The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that that person who dies without Christ and faces the great white throne judgment and is cast into the lake of fire will have their name removed from the book of life. Every time a child is formed in the mother's womb, that child's name is recorded in the book of life. It's a different book than the Lamb's book of life because those that are recorded in the Lamb's book of life who are born again will never have their names removed because they're in Christ and Christ is in them. But the Bible indicates to us that those that are cast into the lake of fire, the second death, are separated from God uh, for eternity so much so that God removes their name from the book of life and it's as if they've never even existed. God will never even know their existence. It's hard for us to understand that. The demand of sin. The devil doesn't like that, does he? He'll try to interfere with that. Let me tell you, every time, every time, every time I'm telling somebody about this, some interruption will come. You know, dog will bark, phone will ring. Children will come running up to the door with no clothes on. <laughs> Happens every time. We have an adversary. Oh, don't let him interfere this morning. The definition of sin, the demand of sin is death. We know that we have passed from death. Then lastly, the deliverance from sin. Look at 1 John 3, 5. 1 John 3, 5. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. In 1 John 3, 5, the word is is used as a, to link the word him to the words no sin, meaning him equals no sin. Well, who is him? Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You've got to go way back there to see who him is. 1 John 2, 1 and 2, the Bible says, My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Here's who him is, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God by the payment for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Him is Jesus. God became man without ever ceasing to be God. He became man in the person of Christ. Only God, only Christ, could pay the payment for the sins of mankind. Why do you suppose that is? Only God could pay the sins. Only Jesus could pay the sins for the sins of all mankind. You know why? Because he was sinless. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, God, hath made him Christ to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now the reason no other person can pay for our sin is because they have their own sin to contend with. I can't pay for your sin because I've got my own. You can't pay for my sin. Mom and dad couldn't pay for my sin because they've got their own sin to pay for. And the only person that could pay for our sin was the Lord Jesus Christ because he's God in the flesh and he's sinless. He didn't know sin. Only the glory of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, was able to satisfy the wrath of God. That's what that word propitiation means. John 1.14 tells us the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as, the, uh, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 10.12 says this man that speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, by which 
We are sanctified, separated from the dead in their sin through the suffering of the body of Jesus Christ. And then I like what Hebrews 10.10 says there, once for all, once for all, once for all, once for all. Are you with me? Once for all. Do you know what you can say there? Once for you. You can put your name there. Once for Judy. Once for Larry. Once for Ben. Once for Emily. Once for Keith. Once for Gail. Once for Larry. You put your name there. Once for all, but once for you. Once for you. you like to be clean? Oh, I don't mean just cleaner. Wouldn't you like to be clean? Wouldn't you like to stand before God guiltless? Oh, guilt's a horrible master, isn't it? It runs so many of our lives. Guilt and fear runs so much of our lives. Wouldn't you like to stand before God, as we talked about last Sunday, justified? Justified. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. The deliverance from sin and sin's penalty can only be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning, Mrs. Knopf, you can make your way to the piano. She's going to play our hymn of invitation in just a minute. If you're here this morning and you do not know for sure that you have been set free from the demand of sin, I mean, you find yourself as a sinner this morning as we talked about those commandments. By the way, can I say this? This is for the believer, those that have trusted in Christ. God gave us those Ten Commandments, and we ought to use them in bringing other people to Christ. Jesus, as a matter of fact, confronted the lawyers and said to the lawyers, you've taken away the key. You've taken away the key and hindered, and, and you haven't entered in yourselves, and you've hindered others who have tried. You know what the key is? The key is the law. The law unlocks the door, the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And Jesus accosted the lawyers and said, look, you're trying to get everybody to, to obey the law, and that's not why God gave us law. You took away the key, he said. You didn't enter in yourselves, and everybody who tries to enter in, you're hindering them by telling them, well, you've got to obey the Ten Commandments, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And Christ said, no. The only reason that law was given was to bring us to faith in Christ. It, the law helps me to see I'm a sinner. Maybe as we talked about that this morning, the Holy Spirit of God was dealing with you in your heart. I know what that feels like. And there's a struggle, isn't it? It's a struggle inside and it's all. Oh. 
And it's almost like you can't wait for the invitation to be over so we can get out of here because it feels so bad sometimes and you just feel so guilty and so dirty inside. And, and don't you want to be clean once and for all? There's only one person that can satisfy that demand, and that's Christ. The demand for sin. For the lost person today, you, you're here and you do not know for sure that if you died, you go to heaven. You found that I'm a sinner. And I believe what God said about my sin. And I believe what God said about the demand for my sin. And I believe that Jesus can take care of that. I believe he's God in the flesh. And I believe he's the only person that can deliver me from what I'm feeling right now, from that bondage. You say, how do I do that? The Bible says in 1 John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. It's a simple equation. Believe plus receive equals become. You've acquired the knowledge that's necessary to come to Christ for salvation, but now you need to let it settle in your heart and to take ownership of it. See, faith believes, but faith also beckons. Faith, faith is that little voice in your heart right now that's going, come, come to Christ, come to Christ. But faith also behaves. Faith takes action. Faith says, I'm going to step out and I'm going to place my faith and trust in Christ alone. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, with a heart man believeth unto righteousness and with a mouth confession is made unto salvation. I think that's a neat picture that we see when somebody believes it in their head and they take it for their own in their heart. They tell God, God, I believe. They verbalize it. And that's how we come to faith in Christ. We, we simply go to the Father and say, Father, I believe. As much as is possible, as much as is in me, the faith the size of a grain of a mustard seed with just that much faith, I'm willing to stick my neck out there and I'm willing to come to you, Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in him as my only hope of salvation. We turn from everything that we thought would give us a relationship with God and we come by faith to Christ to have that relationship. You're here today, you've not yet trusted in Christ as your Savior. The invitation is for you to come. Come. Come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they should be white as snow. Oh, don't you want to be clean? For the believer, 1 John 3, 6 says, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. I'm going to say something here to the believer, and it's going to be shocking to you, but it's impossible for a believer to abide in Christ and sin. It is impossible. If we sin, we're not abiding in Christ. Because it's possible after salvation for a, a believer to transgress and trespass. Now, we've got an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Bible tells us if we confess our sin, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it is impossible for a believer to be abiding in Christ and sin. We can't do both at the same time. Don't you want to get clean? I don't mean just cleaner. I'm talking about clean. God speak to your heart. Was there something that came up as we went through those Ten Commandments, a reminder, oh my, yes, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. Maybe something we've become so calloused about that we have forgotten. Is that a possibility? 
we become so calloused against taking the Lord's name in vain that we just go right past it. It comes into our homes. We go right past it. We become so calloused that we've lost our blush. Would you, would you agree with that? Part of America's problem is that we've lost our blush. Things that 20 years ago made us blush don't, doesn't even faze us any longer. I'm talking about Christians. We become so accustomed to sin. You know what's part of the problem is we've, we've lost our fear of God. You know, somebody might listen to that special music that was sung so beautifully by Allison this morning, and there's a, a part in there, holy, holy, holy. And somebody might say, well, what does that have to do with the rest of the song? It has everything to do with the rest of the song because all of God's attributes, all of God's other attributes of love and grace and mercy and all that stuff rests upon the fact that He is holy. And sometimes we become so calloused, so distanced from God, we, we've lost our fear of God. And to lose our fear of God, we had to change the God we feared. Somebody say amen. We've made God in some sinful image of man. You might be here today and the Holy Spirit's dealing in your heart. You might not even know what it is, but you know. You know. Well, don't you want to be clean? We're going to sing our invitation. I invite all to come. 337, let's stand. 337, once for all. Look at the words. Wonderful song. 337, we'll sing a hymn of invitation. You come if the Lord has prompted you. If you just need to come and say, Lord, examine me, that'd be a good time to do it. 337 on that first verse, sing with me as we stand.